espace l'on est dans le monde, aussi ne doit-il pas attacher trop fortement son cœur à bien de particulier. Il faut qu'il y ait aussi en lui une part vagabonde, dont le plaisir soit dans le changement et le passage. Hello, Sean here. Welcome back to Dilettantry. Welcome back to part two of this discussion on Deleuze and Guattari's view of prehistoric cave art. Looking at Darren Ambrose's 2006 paper, 30,000 BCE, Painting Animality. We were talking about how Deleuze and Guattari are trying to think about art without using this dichotomy of abstraction versus representation, trying to think outside of this common idea called hylomorphism, this deeply ingrained idea that art is comprised of matter and form. Deleuze and Guattari and Ambrose instead want to see art as matter and forces. They want to see art as capturing invisible forces, making these normally invisible forces visible. And it does this by co-creation between artist and matter. The paint isn't just a neutral material that the painter's will manipulates, but the paint, as well as the canvas, I think, co-create with the painter. They, they bring something to the table as well. We'll dig into this more. Something you might have been a little bewildered by last episode is all the terminology, some of which I didn't even explain. I gather that this is a big part of this kind of philosophy, often called continental philosophy, as opposed to analytic. Where, you know, in analytic philosophy, I think it's more common to define all the terms that the philosopher wants to use before they use them. And, you know, you define them, and then only then do you start using weird terms that you're inventing. But in continental philosophy, often it's preferred to just start writing using these weird terms without defining them up top, instead, sort of letting the meaning emerge with the text. Often they're trying to get at something very specific, where trying to explicitly define it is super hard, I think. Maybe impossible, I don't know. So that's kind of cool, but also maybe annoying. I think the way to handle this is not to stress out about not understanding a term. Just kind of go with it and see if eventually an understanding or a meaning emerges. Like, besides the plane of imminence, last episode, those other planes that they talked about, I didn't fully grasp their importance yet at least um but no don't stress out just keep going see if um when you look back at it maybe what you read ahead will inform what you read previously that sort of idea and we should probably start here by going over some of the terminology that i brushed past last episode a big part of deleuze's metaphysics is individuation which i think is how things entities forms beings come to be, since obviously looking around, the universe isn't this completely flowy, transformy place. You know, it's not like how they describe the plane of imminence. It seems like I am me, and that dog is that dog, and that chair is that chair. But I think in Deleuze's view, all this comes out of this plane of imminence. That's the important thing. This plane of imminence, quote, upon which unformed elements and materials dance that are distinguished from each other only by their speed, and that enter into this or that individuated assemblage, depending on their connections, their relations of movement, a fixed plane of life, 
upon which everything stirs, slows down, or accelerates. A single abstract animal for all the assemblages that effectuate it. Unquote. So first of all, that word assemblage, that's another big part of their philosophy. I think it's a way of thinking about you know, how things come out of this plane of eminence, where you think about them as more interconnected than usually in other philosophies, or, you know, as a just general layman or whatever. Like, the specifics are very complicated, but how things emerge from this plane of imminence, I think that, like, they're still connected in very various ways. So they use this term assemblage to be like, yeah, all things that emerge, I don't know, are, are still in relation or something. I don't know. They're just trying to get beyond thinking about, like, this thing is this thing, and that thing is that thing, right? It's more, it's a lot more complicated. Um, so out of this plane of imminence, forms and things, me and you, arise, which Deleuze thinks of as the actualization of something that exists virtually. Instead of the dualism of the real and the possible, with the idea that there's this big circle of what's possible and then a small circle inside, that that's what's real, if that makes sense. <laughs> like there are certain things that are possible and then out of this comes what is real, what exists. Instead of that dualism, Deleuze wants us to think about the actual and the virtual, which both are real, just the actual is concrete while the virtual is not. And that might seem a little nitpicky and weird, but the reason he doesn't like this possible, real dualism is because, first of all, it means that things that are invented conceptually but don't exist in reality don't really fit in, in a way. Like, things invented in people's minds aren't seen as something as real as other things that exist in the world as matter, even though they can have lots of consequences, right? Like, you know, ideologies and stuff. Like. They have a lot of real-world consequences, but they're thought of as less real, according to Deleuze, in this real-possible dualism. Or things like, like video games or animated uh, motion pictures. These things have a reality on the screen, but they're not seen as on the same level of reality under this real-possible dualism. I think by putting everything on this same plane, this plane of imminence, it allows you to see, like, you know, to see how everything interacts with everything else, rather than splitting reality up into, like, things in the head and things that you can touch, right? Matter versus mind, real versus possible. Another problem Deleuze has with this dualism is that he thinks it doesn't adequately explain why possible things that don't exist don't exist yet. It doesn't explain how they come to be. Um, and this is just coming from Oxford reference, by the way. I don't really know why. Um, indifference and repetition, Deleuze says, quote, The virtual is opposed not to the real, but to the actual. The virtual is fully real insofar as it is virtual. Exactly what Proust said of states of resonance must be said of the virtual. Real without being actual. Ideal without being abstract. Unquote. How this actually works, how things are individuated, 
how assemblages come to be, how the virtual becomes actualized, is very complicated. Um, and Ambrose delves into it if you want to check it out. Uh, I'll, I'll just give you a taste. This is the sort of thing that I do not want to <laughs> delve into. The virtual in itself is always something distinct as the self-forming form, which is grasped independently of any actualization. And it is this virtual as a principle of self-forming form that is engaged in an ongoing process of individuation. The virtual thus becomes actualized, but also always remains something imminent within the actual. A virtual multiplicity, always in reserve, still to come. The actualization of the virtual is twofold. Actual, individuated bodies and material forces, and the invisible, passive syntheses of retentive connections that make up the conditions of possibility for there to be any manifest and material conditions. So, yeah, I feel like that would be getting way too deep in the woods. Let's try to bring it back to cave art without, you know, getting something from this without going all the way into it and all of its complexities. The point is that somehow the virtual becomes actual. It goes through individuation. Um, but this simplifies too much. The virtual is what propels the creation of things. It's what provides the force that makes the virtual actual through individuation. But this individuation is a constant thing. Ambrose says, quote, The fundamental process of creation in nature is a continuous actualization of a virtual force. However, this virtual is always in some sense held back in reserve, in absolute imminence. As such, the virtual entails an ongoing creative force of natural composition through which the virtual becomes actual, unquote. And this is where that passage I read um, before this one ties in. Essentially, when things come out of this plane of imminence, when things that are virtual become actual, when they go through individuation, a part of the virtual stays within it. It doesn't become actualized. And this part of the virtual is what propels things into the future, what allows for new things to emerge and connect to this individuated actualization. Everything that becomes actualized, in other words, retains some virtuality. And that's that's where it connects to this plane of imminence in some way and, you know, allows for novelty and stuff. Again, super complicated. I don't fully get the logic, the thinking, like, like why this is the case. But hopefully you're also getting an idea of what this looks like, an emerging feeling of what it looks like. Things emerge via an actualization of the virtual, and the virtual is continually providing the force for this actualization. And the virtual is imminent within the actual bodies and ideas and facts and things that are forming and becoming what can be thought of as a passive force, something that sounds kind of contradictory. Ambrose uses another interesting term to describe the virtual, saying it's a self-forming form. I think digging into exactly what that means would make me understand this on a deeper level. The virtual is actualized, but within that actualization, there's always something virtual that propels it forward into new assemblages, connections, that leads to new becomings, new forms, new individuations. Nothing is ever just virtual or actual. 
and the virtual and the actual are always moving somehow. Yeah, also figuring out this would deepen my understanding. Somehow interacting with the plane of imminence. And this is how reality works, how forms emerge, how objects and thoughts and facts and whatever else exist. Nothing is purely actual. There's always this virtuality that surrounds it or is imminent within it that propels the creation of the new. In his essay, The Actual and the Virtual, Deleuze says, quote, Philosophy is the theory of multiplicities, each of which is composed of actual and virtual elements. Purely actual objects do not exist. Every actual surrounds itself with a cloud of virtual images. This cloud is composed of a series of more or less extensive coexisting circuits, along which the virtual images are distributed and around which they run. These virtuals vary in kind, as well as in their degree of proximity from the actual particles by which they are both emitted and absorbed. They are called virtual insofar as their emission and absorption, creation and destruction, occur in a period of time shorter than the shortest continuous period imaginable. It is this very brevity that keeps them subject to a principle of uncertainty or indetermination. The virtuals encircling the actual perpetually renew themselves by emitting yet others, with which they are in turn surrounded and which go on in turn to react upon the actual. In the heart of the cloud of the virtual, there is a virtual of a yet higher order. Every virtual particle surrounds itself with a virtual cosmos, and in each its turn does likewise indefinitely. But the inverse movement also occurs, in which, as the circles contract, the virtual draws closer to the actual, both become less and less distinct. You get to an inner circuit which links only the actual object and its virtual image. An actual particle has its virtual double, which barely diverges from it at all. An actual perception has its own memory as a sort of immediate, consecutive, or even simultaneous double. For, as Bergson shows, memory is not an actual image which forms after the object has been perceived, but a virtual image coexisting with the actual perception of the object. Memory is a virtual image contemporary with the actual object. It's double. It's mirror image. Unquote. So I'm just reading that to show you you know, a little bit of the complexity involved here. You know, to really understand this on an intuitive level, you really have to dig deep into their work and start to see all the different situations and contexts that all these terms are used and combined. And they use lots of terms that are very similar and maybe even the same, like becoming and multiplicity and rhizome, right? All of these are kind of maybe synonymous or at least analogous i'm still at the level of getting like half of it um but still being very confused about why they think certain things and what exactly these concepts are but let's let's keep trying to bring this back to cave art or at least art earlier i mentioned how the virtual is actualized in two ways first of all the actual things like bodies and forces that are actualized but also this other thing, related to how the virtual is always imminent within the actual. Quote, invisible, passive syntheses of retentive connections that make up the conditions of possibility 
for there to be any manifest and material conditions, unquote. That term passive synthesis is important. I don't understand it completely, but this part of actualization, passive syntheses of retentive connections, it's connected to sensation, but a particular kind of sensation that's different from typical sensation and recognition of sensations, a kind of sensation that's a bunch of forces combining, but forces that can't be sensed, forces that are inherently imperceptible, because these forces aren't what is there to be sensed. They're how what is there to be sensed comes to be. They're, they're sort of like what's beneath everything that we sense. Deleuze says, quote, Perceptual syntheses refer back to organic syntheses, which are like the sensibility of the senses. They refer back to a primary sensibility that we are. We are made of contracted water, earth, light, and air not merely prior to the recognition or representation of these, but prior to their being sensed. Every organism in its receptive and perceptual elements is a sum of contractions, of retentions and expectations." Unquote. Beyond ordinary sensation and recognition. Like seeing a thing that my mind says is a chair, or hearing something my mind says is a honk, Beyond all of that, there is this other kind of sensation that Deleuze calls a being of sensation. It's a collection of forces and vibrations, and each being of sensation is already a bunch of sensations that are a bunch of forces. I think that's why he talks about how we are made of contracted water, earth, light, and air, not just prior to our representations of these things, but prior to sensing them. Maybe that's like part of these imperceptible forces that are beneath what can be sensed, but out of which emerges what can be sensed. I'm not sure, but this is, this is how we finally get back to art. These are the invisible forces that the artist makes visible. The artist's job isn't to represent visible things, but to make these invisible forces visible as blocks of space-time, as beings of sensation. The goal of art is to get hold of the virtual force imminent in the actual by making sensation out of the virtual becoming the actual. <laughs> so I'm going I'm to quote a long passage from Ambrose here. He says, quote, It is only upon the aesthetic plane of composition and within the artwork that these invisible forces, which are now captured, configured, or rendered sensible as blocks of sensation, confront us. As I indicated earlier, for Deleuze and Guattari, the most general aim of all art is to produce a sensation, to create a pure being of sensation. Thus, the work of art utilizes the passive synthesis of the being of sensation to produce affects of its own. The synthetic and accumulative principles of sensation themselves become the principles of composition upon the aesthetic plane of composition. Art attempts to capture or seize this virtual force imminent to the actual by attempting to seize the becoming other of the virtual's passage into the actual, the event, as sensation. Art, in its attempt to render a sense of non-human becoming something perceptible within a work, must wrest this becoming other away from any organized bodily or human structure of perception and affection. 
Villas and Guattari adopt the modernist dictum of the painter Paul Klee, not to render the visible, but to render visible. The fundamental task of all art is not the mere reproduction of visible forms, but rather the capture and presentation of the non-visible forces that act behind or beneath these forms. Unquote. Since the virtual is always imminent in the actual, Deleuze and Guattari call it pure possibility. And another way to think about art is that if it captures those invisible forces sufficiently, it's showing this pure possibility. I don't want to say representing it, but this pure possibility is there to be sensed in the artwork somehow. This pure possibility is an infinitude, infinite possibility, and this is the infinity that the artist tries to capture. Quote, the virtual must become something to be struggled with aesthetically, and its productive vitality put to work, and it must be allowed to breed its forms in the visual space of the work, without its chaotic energy destroying the overall cohesion of that work. Art unleashes becoming. The aesthetic plane of composition can be thought of as a type of embodied becoming. In this way, we can begin to think of prehistoric art as being engaged in a ceaseless search to create a finite monument that in some way restores a sense of the infinite. Unquote. And remember what we began this episode talking about? Abstract versus representational cave art? Well, Deleuze and Guattari go as far as to say, no art is imitative. No art can be imitative or figurative. So, put another way, no art can be representational. This is one of the hardest things to wrap your mind around. And again, keep in mind that all this is bolstered by a very complex framework and foundation and stuff. It's a metaphysical framework. Um, you know, as I read more and more of them, it starts to make more and more sense. <laughs> I guess that thing about the meanings emerging, that really is true. Um, but but let's see let's see what Ambrose says about this how no art can be representational. Um, I think his his little frame of it can can help us get a little bit of the way there. Ambrose says, quote, "Suppose a painter represents a bird. This is in fact a becoming bird that can occur only to the extent that the bird itself is in the process of becoming something else, a pure line and pure color. Thus." Imitation self-destructs, since the imitator unknowingly enters into a becoming that conjugates with the unknowing becoming of that which he or she imitates. One imitates only if one fails when one fails. The painter and musician do not imitate the animal, they become animal at the same time as the animal becomes what they willed, at the deepest level of their concord with nature. Becoming is always double. That which one becomes becomes no less than the one that becomes. Block is formed, essentially mobile, never in equilibrium. Unquote. So I'm still a little fuzzy about this, but I think I kind of understand. The painter doesn't represent the bird using their will to manipulate a pliable blank material, paint and canvas, but instead the paint and the painter work together, and also maybe the bird, to make the material become bird, right? Like, the bird becomes the, 
paint and the paint becomes the bird in this way. The bird becomes paint in a form of particular lines and shades and colors. And not only does the paint become bird, but the painter becomes bird as well. It's very complicated, but yeah, I think I think maybe just one thing to keep in mind is that this plane of eminence is beneath everything or within everything. So everything is interacting a lot more than it seems in their philosophy. Um, there's this life between things as well as this life of organisms. Becoming, as I mentioned above, is a confusing but very central part of Deleuze and Guattari. It isn't that the painter transforms into a bird, it's more that the painter becomes a bit less human because they extracted something from the animal, what Deleuze and Guattari call a proximity, an indiscernibility that sweeps us up. One way to understand this is to understand being human as a suppression of our animality. We hide a lot of our animal things like sex and shitting and ravenously eating and go out in public wearing clothes and talking fancy, being like, ooh, look how human we are. Do, 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 do. We, prefer, we prefer body to flesh. But then becoming's animal happen when there's this proximity between ourselves and the animal. Like when we wake up and stretch like our cat, or snarl like a wolf in anger, losing control for a second, or when our body loses its organization, its form, to become flesh or meat, like when shamans put on an animal mask and enter a trance, or when the painter works with paint to make the paint become bird. In a, in a different series, I'm going to look at this idea more, becoming, because um, it's, you know, it's very hard to wrap your mind around. I'm still doing it myself. But that last line that I read in that passage, um, that's something to keep in mind. Becoming is always double. That which one becomes, becomes no less than the one that becomes. So it's not like, it's not just transformation, right? We're not talking about like werewolves or something where a person changes into a wolf. It's, it's something less, more subtle and more confusing. Ambrose says, quote, For Deleuze and Guattari, art provides a means of accessing the animal of traversing a signification and getting beyond mere representational meaning by means of intense sweeping, blazing, and becoming." Unquote. We can talk more about how Deleuze and Guattari talk about art, getting a bit more specific now. In a section of The Thousand Plateaus, their famous book called Nomad Art, they start to sound kind of like McLuhan, if you listen to that first series I did about him. I think this is because they both read Alloy Regal, this art historian and theorist from the early 1900s. Regal developed a dichotomy to try to talk about the styles of art found in the cultures that he called, in the language of the time, primitive. So, you know, art from small-scale societies, art that's not from the West, but also not the dominant styles of China or the Middle East. 
It's kind of what McLuhan was getting at with his dichotomy of the oral or audile-tactile versus the visual. But Deleuze and Guattari, following Regal, call it haptic space versus optical space. So haptic is a word that relates to touch, and optical is a word that relates to the eyes. So, you know, it's very similar to uh, what McLuhan was on about. Deleuze and Guattari borrow the two related terms and use them alongside some other double terms they invoke. Um, the smooth and the striated, the intensive versus the extensive. A lot of Deleuze and Guattari's terms, I've noticed, kind of come at the same thing from different directions. Like, I think all of this is very much tied to the actual and the virtual, imminence and transcendence. I think all these, these doubles that they create, first of all, they create them not to be strict dichotomies, but, you know, to be doubles in a more complicated way. Um, and secondly, I think, yeah, I, I think maybe that's one reason they seem so confusing, because they use all these different words to try to get at the same thing, or at least very similar things. The most important one for cave art, though, I think, is the smooth versus the striated. These are two types of space they identify. The smooth is the space found in the virtual that we were talking about, and the striated is the space of things that are actualized, to put it simply. But another way to say this is that smooth space is intensive, whereas striated space is extensive. When it comes to space, we can think about extensive properties as things get, that can be abstracted and separated, um, whereas intensive properties are continuous and not really able to be separated and abstracted and divided. So an example of extensive property, um, that would be something like the mass of a beaker of water, right? You can separate that beaker, you can separate that water into two beakers, right? You can divide that mass into two. That's what, that's what I mean by abstracting and dividing. You can kind of separate the mass from the beaker of water. But something like temperature, that's an intensive property. It's, yeah, it's, it's not able to be, like, divided into two with the beaker of water. It's more kind of connected to what the material is. I'll read Ambrose's explanation, because um, I definitely need his help here. He says, quote, the smooth is the space of the virtual and is defined as a relatively undifferentiated and continuous topological space, hence smooth, which is incessantly undergoing discontinuous transitions and is progressively acquiring determination until it condenses into a measurable and divisible metric space, hence striated. Smooth space is a fluid space of continuous variation characterized by a plurality of local directions." Unquote. So, see what I mean about using different words to talk about similar things? This is just what we've been talking about for most of the episode, but now we have two additional terms related specifically to the spaces, the smooth and the striated, I guess four, as well as haptic and optical. Here's where it gets cool, at least to me. Ambrose describes the difference between these spaces in a fascinating way, using a geometric example just focused on lines and points. He says that in striated space, lines and points are understood in a way that I'm used to based on 
you know, basic Euclidean geometry, where the important part of a line, if you imagine it on a graph, is where the points are that the line connects. Right? The line is seen as secondary to where those points are. If you're not mathematically minded, this might be a little confusing. I guess another way to say it is that in striated space, lines are determined by points. If the points are further away from each other, the line is long. If they're close together, the line is short. If the second point is above the first, the line slopes upwards. If it's below, it slopes downwards. The points define the line. If you change the position of a point, the previously existing line is now a different line. It's not the same. But smooth space is different. Instead of the points defining the line, the line is given independence, to use Ambrose's phrase. And, quote, it treats points simply as relays between successive lines, unquote. So, I'm going to be honest, I'm a little fuzzy on this still. I can't quite picture it. Like, I think I'm stuck on what exactly relays means here. But, I mean, before we try to figure it out, the main point is that instead of points being primary, the lines are primary in some way. Let's look at another way of explaining it from Deleuze and Guattari. They say that striated space, quote, closes off a surface and allocates it according to determinate intervals assigned breaks. In the smooth, one distributes oneself in an open space according to frequencies and in the course of one's crossing, unquote. So I get what striated space means. It's the space you learn to graph in high school math, I think. Draw two points, connect them with a line, figure out ways of analyzing the line, use this tool to solve problems. It's, it's the space of like a blueprint, I think, where everything, you know, everything's in relation to everything else based on certain, a certain logic, uh, something like that. But smooth space is one in which one distributes oneself in an open space according to frequencies and in the course of one's crossing. The line is given independence by treating points simply as relays between successive lines. What I think this means is that in smooth space, there are always more lines. Things are less stable. Like in striated space, by defining a line as something between two points, it means that a given line is a specific line, uniquely defined by those points. There's no other line that can have exactly those two points. That would just be this line. It's unique because all other instances of it are equal to itself. And this can be brought into things like, you know, like blueprints again, made of tons of these lines. But due to this logic, there are certain places for those lines to be when designing a house or whatever. Not many squiggles, but lots of right angles. But by giving the line independence in smooth space, by defining points by lines, I think the idea is that things aren't fixed in this way. New lines can appear even by just looking at it differently. An example I was thinking of with this, um, I think this is kind of what they're talking about, what they're on about. It's kind of fun to do, actually. If you're ever near a painting, like at an art museum or someone's wall, 
and the painting is representational. It resembles something in the world in a fairly naturalistic way. It's really fun to get progressively closer and closer to the painting until the forms disappear, and all you're seeing from really close up is just different colors of paint mixing together. Maybe different textures too, depending on the style. Like I, again, it's it's really crazy to think about that quote from last episode about how paintings are just colors arranged in a certain way inside a certain space. That's all it is. And when you move backward and you can watch the forms emerge again. You can go back and forth like that. So to translate into Deleuze and Guattarian terms, I think what you're doing is going back and forth between striated space and smooth space, between uh, optical space and haptic space. Again, not 100% sure, but I think this is right. It's at least analogous. When you look really closely at the paint, to the point where it becomes swirls and lines and splotches of color, things can kind of transform. Like if you forget about the painted scene that emerges when you step back, and just when you're looking at these swirls of paint, your mind makes connections, sees shapes, just like when you look at clouds or something. But since it isn't planned in the same way as the representational scene, your perceptions aren't stable. You see one familiar shape and then that one fades as your eyes find a new way to look at it, and another familiar shape emerges. Or maybe you don't even see anything representational. Maybe your eyes just sort of pick out different things the longer you stare. You're like, wow, I love how the red and the yellow are mixing with each other right there. And then you look at it for a while, but you completely overlook this certain shade of blue that really frames the red and yellow and is really interesting perceptually in some way. Once you've noticed it, you can't unsee it. You've almost forgotten about the red and yellow by now. Something like that. Ambrose says, quote, space becomes tactile, as if the eye were now a hand caressing one surface after another without any sense of the overall configuration or mutual relation of those surfaces. It is a virtual space whose fragmented components can be assembled in multiple combinations. In this pure, haptic, smooth space of close vision, all orientation, landmarks, and the linkages between things are in constant variation, that is, a continuous transmutation which operates step by step to no prearranged or pre-governed schema. There is no stable, unified set of reference, since orientations are never constant, but constantly change." Unquote. It's interesting, Deleuze and Guattari liken smooth space to the space of a nomad, people who spend their lives roaming, moving around, rather than building a house that stays in one spot. This means that for the nomad, the path they take is more important than the points along it. The nomad is distributed across the land. Often they follow the same path repeatedly, so it's not just like they're aimlessly wandering. So this is another way to understand that the lines are more important than the points along it. They say that this is the territorial principle of nomads, which is interesting to me. I'm not 100% sure what territorial principle means, but just spitballing. 
I was just thinking about what I assume is the territorial principle of my non-nomadic life in society, where I rent a house in a specific place that's owned by a specific person, and all these things and relations are subject to all these laws that my municipality, province, and country have made over the years. And that's how my territory works, right? It's very much like a blueprint, I think, a schema, this abstract scaffolding of rules and regulations. Whereas someone in a nomadic culture has a territorial principle defined by these lines that are continuously traveled but are more fluid and can adapt to a changing landscape or political or meteorological situation. Like, the paths are customary, but not so set in stone that they can't transform. In an interview, Deleuze talks about how, <laughs> like, nomads are the people who stay in place the most, because the nomadic life is that way because they really want to stay on their land, right? Someone like, someone like, uh, like an, an immigrant who is, uh, flung across the lands due to war or something they're traveling because they're trying to get somewhere they're trying to leave but nomads travel to stay it's kind of a fun paradox speaking of nomads i have to read this passage i recently came across from the libyan novelist ibrahim alconi since you know just since it's relevant and really cool i think he was a nomad before his writing career or maybe still with his writing career. Ibrahim Alconi says, quote, Man betrayed the prophetic advice of his ancestors, who adopted the law of migration, believing the sedentary are the only dead ones, since they alone possess bodies that arouse the earth's greed. Nomadic people, who never stay anywhere or settle down on the earth, own nothing to provoke the earth or arouse its greed. They possess nothing, no gear, no walls, no bodies, not even dreams. All they possess is their voyage, nothing more. They possess a single riddle, over which the earth holds no sway, and for which the lowlands can offer no explanation. This is deliverance. Unquote. Just thought that was cool, but let's get back to art. So, smooth space is the space of the nomad, the space that Quote, becomes tactile as if the eye were now a hand caressing one surface after another without any sense of the overall configuration or mutual relation of those surfaces. It is a virtual space whose fragmented components can be assembled in multiple combinations. In this pure haptic smooth space of close vision, all orientation, landmarks, and the linkages between things are in continuous variation. Unquote. Smooth space, the space of the nomad, the space where lines have primariness over points. All this, very similar to series one, um, I keep thinking of that quote by the blind French resistance fighter Jacques Le Serin, who said that um, who said that when he became blind, he his sort of stance towards the world changed because. Vision is the only sight that provides distance. You can be like, oh, that person's 10 meters away. Oh, that person's 100 meters away. Like, eyes are the only sense that makes that, the distance clear in that way. Um, 
every every other sense is kind of coming towards you and exists on in your body whereas vision casts the world out in front of you and this guy Jacques Lesseron he said that when he became blind he stopped living in front of the world and began living with it so that's kind of what they're talking about with this haptic space versus optical space haptic is the space of the touch the hand moving along a surface whereas optical is the the space of vision of standing back and staying in one spot and letting things unfold in front of you and their correct relations and and orientations and stuff i'm going to read another quote from deleuze and guattari but uh before i do i want to just explain one word they use they use this word hexaity which comes from the middle ages and it just means the thing that makes an an individual object individual right like distinct from all the other objects of that type right what makes me me not another person so that's what hexiety means Deleuze and Guattari say quote there is an extraordinarily fine topology that relies not on points or objects but rather on hexiades on sets of relations winds undulations of snow or sand the song of the sand or the creaking of the ice the tactile qualities of both it is a tactile space or rather haptic a sonorous much more than a visual space the variability the polyvocality of directions is an essential feature of smooth spaces these questions of orientation location and linkage enter into play in the most famous works of nomad art the twisting animals have no land beneath them the ground constantly changes direction as in aerial acrobatics the paws point in the opposite direction from the head the hind part of the body is turned upside down the monadological points of view can be interlinked only on a nomad space the whole and the parts give the eye that beholds them a function that is haptic rather than optical this is an animality that can be seen only by touching it with one's mind but without the mind becoming a finger not even by way of the eye." Unquote. So this is kind of another way of looking at those features in art that we looked about in the first series in those art episodes like 1.19 and stuff with Marshall McLuhan and Ted Carpenter and Denise Schment Besserat and all that where they were talking a lot about how art changed due to the invention of writing and they were talking about you know audile tactile and oral spaces versus visual ones this is kind of the same thing and we can bring in another figure the early 20th century art theorist Wilhelm Waringer who was analyzing the art of and these seem like old-fashioned terms so don't yell at me but of northern barbarian people he developed the concept called the northern line or the gothic line a line that Waringer said contained a confusing non-organic life a non-organic life conceived in a way that really fit into Deleuze and Guattari's own ideas like their body without organs um we haven't talked about too much as well as the virtual and the actual and the becoming animal and all that so Deleuze and Guattari took up Waringer's concept and tried to apply it to prehistoric European cave art but before we apply it let's look closer at what Waringer meant talking about the gothic art of the northern barbarians 
Ambrose says that this northern line, or Gothic line, quote, is a line that passes between things, and in the process, imbues the figures of people, animals, plants, etc., with a common, nervous, and frenetic energy. Its movement gives birth to a dynamic and chaotic geometry of diagonals, jagged edges, and swirling lines that actively construct space rather than merely describing it. This nomadic line connects and assembles heterogeneous elements while maintaining them as heterogeneous. Thus, space is assembled piece by piece, with each piece of space having its own internal geometrical coordinates, its own temporal rhythms, its own dramatic intensities." Unquote. This is kind of how the purely haptic eye sees, the tactile eye, the eye of close vision, the eye that sees the painting up close, where, you know, all the representational forms have dissolved. Quote, this nomadic line connects and assembles heterogeneous elements while maintaining them as heterogeneous. Thus, space is assembled piece by piece, with each piece of space having its own internal geometrical coordinates, its own temporal rhythms, and its own dramatic intensities. Unquote. We can also think back to the definition of virtual space, smooth space, and the way Ambrose defined it, where instead of lines being the things that connect certain points, lines are given independence, and points are secondary, just things that can connect a whole bunch of lines that are kind of in motion or transforming, it seems. So obviously these independent lines of smooth virtual spaces kind of sound like this northern line or gothic line that, and I'll read it again, passes between things, and in the process, imbues the figures of people, animals, plants, etc., with a common, nervous, and frenetic energy. I really like that last part, where they talk about the line actively constructing space, rather than just describing it. But Deleuze and Guattari take this concept of the northern line, or the gothic line, and start calling it the nomadic line. They say, this nomadic line connects and assembles heterogeneous elements while maintaining them as heterogeneous. Thus, space is assembled piece by piece, with each piece of space having its own internal geometrical coordinates, its own temporal rhythms, its own dramatic intensities. And this is also how the purely haptic eye functions. Ambrose says, quote, it seeks to integrate each heterogeneous element within a unified smooth space of tactile intensities. The haptic eye is able to provide an infinite succession of heterogeneous linkages and changes in direction. They claim that this purely haptic function of the eye is in some sense isomorphic with the process of becoming. So the eye is a purely haptic thing, analogous to looking at a painting up close, like that part of the eye. It has other functions, other ways of looking, but that part of the eye works by providing an infinite succession of linkages and changes in direction. Right? We can think about the lines giving being given independence there. An infinite succession of linkages and changes in direction. It works by never being stable and always producing new ways of looking by acting like the hand of someone with sand in their eyes, perpetually feeling around, but optically instead of with your hands. Interestingly, this is metaphorically like becoming. 
This is analogous to how becoming works in the world. I think the virtual part of all actualized things kind of produces these new linkages and integrations and changes in orientation and direction. That's how, that's how it allows new things to emerge. Something like that. So if you take a look at the panel from Troy Frere that Ambrose highlights, I'll link it in the show notes, you can see exactly how this connects to at least some cave art, where figures and abstraction swirl and jostle together, where there's no steady orientation or horizon or form. So Deleuze and Guattari hijack that concept of the northern, gothic, nomadic line from Warringer, and try to explain prehistoric cave art with what they call the nomad line or the abstract line, a line that constructs space rather than just merely describing it, constructing it out of this purely haptic smooth space, connecting heterogeneous elements while not just smoothing them over to make them homogeneous, each of them having their own rhythms and intensities and geometries. And this nomad abstract line has a sort of non-organic life of its own, connected to another concept of Deleuze and Guattari's the body without organs, which, again, hard to explain, the life between things, I guess. The point is that it's not a stable organism, like how we normally think about life, where we have a body that organizes its organs in a certain way and must maintain those organs, and that organization to continue itself. The abstract line, the nomad line, and the bodies without organs they're alive by connecting things, by traveling across smooth virtual space, by connecting heterogeneous elements. Quote, they thus attempt to reconceive the notion of the Gothic line as the prehistoric abstract line. This more radical form of abstract line was, they claim, capable of sustaining infinite figural possibilities and of breeding an infinite realm of possible organic becomings upon a field of radically non-organic forms. Ultimately, such a line is a genuine feature of the prehistoric nomadic aesthetic. Here, the abstract line embraces a wildly dynamic, non-organic geometry of jagged lines, twisting loops, superimpositions, and accelerating spirals, ultimately blurring the distinction between figure and ground, and tracing out the smooth space of the aesthetic plane of composition. The plant and animal forms that this abstract line appears to trace within prehistoric art are thus deformed representational images. Zones of indiscernibility of the line are disclosed, in that the line is common to different animals, to man and animal, and to pure abstraction." Unquote. Again, this is something that would make more sense once their metaphysics was exhaustively understood, but a good thing to do here is Think back to the beginning of this episode, where we were talking about Deleuze and Guattari's understanding of philosophy, science, and art, how art is capturing invisible forces, a collection of percepts and affects that's extracted from the human doing the perceiving and being affected, extracted from what makes these percepts and affects human, allowing this extracted being of sensation to interact with the universe rather than being a particular instance of a human interacting with the universe, allowing the being of sensation to co-create by dipping into the swirling virtual field that life alone can create, you know, life with a capital L, the plane of imminence, on the plane of composition. So, a lot to wrap our minds around. Again, don't worry about understanding everything. 
point is that Deleuze and Guattari say that the abstract nomad line is, quote, inorganic yet alive, and all the more alive for being inorganic, unquote. That's what we talked about earlier, them having this weird definition of life, the capital L. And this abstract nomadic line is specifically how prehistoric art functioned, at least the ones in France and Spain that are the most focused on. Just like how the northern Gothic line was the way specifically northern barbarian aesthetics functions. Quote, they claim that if prehistoric art is to become conceived of as art, it is precisely because of the exemplary way in which it manipulates a purely abstract and non-rectilinear line to give expression to radically non-organic forces of life. If the nomad line encounters an animal, if it becomes animalized, it is not by outlining a form, but by imposing, through its clarity and non-organic precision, a zone where form becomes indiscernible." Unquote. Again, pretty confusing. Probably don't get everything. I certainly don't. I, I want to dig in more to this idea about life, though, when they said, all the more alive for being inorganic. It's a pretty weird thing to say, but you know, we said it was a body without organs, this term for this non-organic life. Deleuze and Guattari's definition of life is, at some point they say, quote, if everything is alive, it is not because everything is organic or organized, but because the organism is a diversion of life. In short, the life in question is organic, germinal, and intensive, a powerful life without organs, a body that is all the more alive for having no organs, everything that passes between organisms." Unquote. <laughs> so the organism is a diversion of life. This is probably why lots of scientists don't like these post-structuralist French weirdos. The biologist spends their whole career trying to figure out the perfect definition of life, and then these French guys are like, yeah, actually, organisms aren't life. True life is this confusing uh, inorganic stuff, actually. <laughs> but I hope you can also see what they're doing and why they say this, kind of in a playful way, probably. They see the body as this certain organization of organs, surrounded by the organ called skin, for the human body at least. The organization is very important for the functioning of the organism. Of course, you can live without a leg or whatever, but you can't move your kidneys and brain around and expect to have a great time. They see these non-organic bodies without organs as more alive because they are more dynamic, more transformative, more reproductive. So in their view, maybe life with a capital L is everywhere, and us as organisms are an interruption of this flowing, transforming, becoming, dynamic life due to how we're organized. Elsewhere they say, quote, language is not life, it gives life orders. Life does not speak, it listens and waits." Unquote. So in a different way, like language also kind of orders life in a way, similar to the body. This life that's flowing everywhere is more lively and more, more lifely, if you will, than what we typically call life, organized in these hierarchical structures, the brain at the top, going down to the cells. Ambrose talks about why the abstract nomad line is particularly alive, more alive for being non-organic. He says, quote, The feverish dynamism associated with this line liberates a power of life, 
which all matter expresses as the trait, flow, or impulse traversing it. This is the power and force of the virtual imminent to the actual. If everything upon the prehistoric plane of composition is then essentially alive, it is precisely because of the way in which it is the aesthetic expression of this virtual power in the actual of matter." Unquote. The feverish dynamism associated with this line liberates a power of life which all matter expresses as the trait, flow, or impulse traversing it. This is the power and force of the virtual imminent to the actual. Remember how we were talking about how Deleuze and Guattari don't see representational art, art that imitates as even possible, or only possible as a failure somehow? Because matter itself has virtual imminent forces and intensities and dynamisms, meaning the paint and the cave wall and the artist co-create via this abstract line and their haptic eye and the beings of sensation they extract from their relations and experiences with the capital L life swirling around them, so that the paint and cave wall and painter become bison and mammoth and lion and swirl, just as bison and mammoth and lion and swirl become paint and become cave wall, and the art on the cave walls is a aesthetic expression of this virtual power in the actual of matter, the power and the force of the virtual imminent in the actual. I think that's right. I think I'm starting to get it more and more, but who knows? <laughs> they call this aspect of prehistoric art a single becoming animal. Maybe we can think of it like the abstract nomad line transforming from chaos into this animal and that animal. And these animals aren't a representation or imitation or really a form, but rather the line becoming animal. It gets animalized, quote, not by outlining a form, but by imposing through its clarity and non-organic precision, a zone where form becomes indiscernible, unquote. Following that, we can say that the animals on the cave walls weren't experienced as organisms in the way described earlier, but rather as what Ambrose calls supra-organic, a supra-organic becoming animal. And something that's interesting, but I still don't quite understand, Ambrose gives another reason why art isn't representational. Again, I don't fully know why, but he says that this necessarily means that instead of, quote, the stable representationalism associated with the mere isolation and reproduction of stable organic form, i.e. organisms, the animal, this supra-organic becoming animal, is a form of pure abstraction." Unquote. So again, we're back to this abstract versus representation dualism. Because of how art is co-created with the paint and cave wall in this abstract line, it isn't a representation, but instead a pure abstraction. I don't fully get this, I don't have an intuitive understanding yet, but, isn't, but it isn't representationalism, because it isn't stable, that's one reason, it seems. The body without organs seems to be more unstable than a body, without or, than a body with organs. Perhaps that's one reason why it's more alive, in a way. It's also not representationalism, but pure abstraction, because the abstract nomad line is a single becoming animal that doesn't imitate, but becomes animal. It doesn't outline a form, but imposes a zone where form becomes indiscernible. 
Ambrose says that understanding this abstract nomad line as a single abstract animal, a single becoming animal, helps us see that this is a way of obtaining unity in aesthetics. And here we can bring in Emmanuel Anadi again, if you remember him, the guy with the psychograms. He found that there are three types of sign in all prehistoric art, pictograms, ideograms, and psychograms. Pictograms are representational images, ideograms are repeated symbols, and psychograms are exclamations created under the influence of intense impulses and violent discharges of energy, and as such were capable of expressing sensation. Psychograms are unique, just the effect of whatever the impulse of the particular prehistoric artist was at that particular time. Anadi argues that this threefold structure is common to all prehistoric art throughout the entire world. Ambrose connects his notion of psychograms to Deleuze and Guattari's zones of indiscernibility, those zones created by the abstract nomad line where form becomes indiscernible. One of the reasons they don't think cave art is representational, Ambrose says, quote, there thus exists a radical graphic continuity in prehistoric art made up of dots, superimposed and broken lines, outlines and profiles, and all of these components can be understood through the operation of the pure nomad line. This nomad line repetitively folds back upon itself to form partial organic outlines, fragments of animals and hybridized animals, which are gradually accumulated and assembled until a more or less complete and stable animal form emerges. This is then ceaselessly dissolved and fragmented back into what Deleuze and Guattari call zones of indiscernibility. The animal becomes other and is transfigured or hybridized into other animal species, or back into the pure field of intensities via the catastrophe of the pure abstract line, or what Anadi has called psychograms. Fragmentary animals fuse into fantastic intermediate and hybridized animals, which incorporate elements from a multitude of different species. The complete isolated animal is only ever caught for an instant, within a concrete graphic form, before it dissolves. It is clear that this process of segmentation, assemblage, and dissolution is a consistent phenomenon throughout all prehistoric art, and is a process illuminated by the aesthetic categories introduced by Deleuze and Guattari. Unquote. So, what Anadi called psychograms can be understood in the deleuze guattarian framework as pure intensities, or rather something that makes these pure intensities visible. Psychograms are when the abstract nomad line transfigures from animal back into a field of intensities, as it ceaselessly does. So, we're almost done. We can now bring in that other prehistorian we began this episode talking about, the one we talked about uh, a few episodes ago, Michel Lorblanchet. I want to read Ambrose's summary of him again, because it's really cool. He says, quote, For Lorblanchet, these lines and marks indicate a clear metaphysical intention, a primeval magma where all living and imaginary beings merge in formal games. Thus, these indeterminate lines and marks contain potentialities for the becoming of latent figural images, and as such are, for Lorblanchet, a crucial element within the prehistoric figuration of a mythology of creation. Here, the figurative components are born from a formless tangle or magma, for example, from the formless web of subsidiary lines 
Perhaps a hoof or an antler emerges. Perhaps a muzzle or a creature's spine. Perhaps an eye stares out from the depths of the graphic chaos. The seemingly incohesive graphic chaos is seemingly vibrant with emergent forms of life." Unquote. So we can connect this as well to Deleuze and Guattari. We can rephrase it in Deleuze and Guattarian language. I love thinking about it as magma. It's very cool. But remember we were talking about how the abstract nomad line doesn't create a representation of various organic animals, but rather co-creates a single supra-organic becoming animal? We can think about Laura Blanchet's magma in terms of this, and this supra-organic becoming animal in terms of Laura Blanchet's magma. The magma can be thought of as an attempt to capture, through a being of sensation, the virtual force of becoming animal itself, rather than the becoming of a specific animal. Or the magma can be thought of as a field of virtual intensities that transform and transfigure all animal forms or attempts at form. Ambrose says, quote, as Laura Blanchet has posited, the graphic continuity in Paleolithic prehistoric art can be seen as a kind of supra-organic animality, a cosmic placenta, a primordial magma, or a field of virtual intensities where all animal forms are transfigured, where there is an attempt to forge linkages between animal forms. This transfiguring and linking of organic forms should in the end be understood as the radical initial aesthetic attempt to figure, through sensation, the virtual force of becoming animal itself. And it is this radical visual fluidity that this entails, which has not been properly comprehended by those who have approached it via a strict classificatory system governed by a representational hierarchy. Unquote. So, there we have it. We've reached our conclusion. And sorry for any background noise. I have to finish this episode uh, outside in a parking lot for reasons you needn't concern yourself with. Um, so we finally got to the end, using Deleuze and Guattari's metaphysics to bring down this dualism of abstract versus representational prehistoric art, connecting it to the theories of Anatti and Laure Blanchet. Now, of course, this would make more sense if we did a deep dive on Deleuze and Guattari. All this stuff is bolstered by hundreds of pages of very complicated metaphysics and other philosophy um, and there are some things that I'm still confused about like why exactly they believe in this metaphysics um, like you, you know due to this continental philosophy of meanings emerging it's a little hard to figure out how they come to certain conclusions like I'm not sure why there is a plane of imminence or this complicated relationship between the actual and the virtual. There's all these things that I'm not sure about. And I'm also not sure about some things relating to cave art specifically. Like, there's an interesting temporality here. The way Ambrose describes it really relies on images of bubbling magma and constant transformation and fluid graphic chaos. But most of the famous European cave art sites have signs of human activity stretching over thousands of years. So I'm just wondering how this very large time scale relates to this swirling, burbling, transforming part of this aesthetics. I, I, I think it can definitely work, but it's just interesting. So, and yeah, I definitely get why super literal, science-minded people might not dig Deleuze and Guattari.
since I spent a lot of time reading this and still have questions because they make moves like saying organisms are diversions from life and stuff like that. But, you know, I think we should have some fun as well. You, you don't need to be a Neil deGrasse Tyson all the time. I think it's fun to think about possibilities as well as probabilities, you know? Maybe even conceivabilities. And as a side note, I have some pretty good intel that says that Neil deGrasse Tyson is actually not a human. He's an undercover agent of an alien civilization who's trying to be so annoying that we cast our eyes down from the stars. He's trying to be so literal that the music of the spheres rings no longer in anyone's being as they gaze up into the cosmos. <laughs> He's trying to well actually us into giving up on further space travel. A sly sabotage that ensures we will never disturb this alien civilization's nebula. But that's for another episode. We're talking about Deleuze and Guattari. And just to end, you know, with a concluding statement, I think that even if you don't fuck with their metaphysics or don't intuitively grasp it quite yet, the notion of graphic continuity is worthwhile, I think. And the various ways that dichotomy of abstract versus representation was broken down, I think it's pretty interesting, even outside of the deleuze guattarian framework. Also, the way I go about thinking about things is using a dichotomy that I made up, which of course is false like all dichotomies, or most of them, but <laughs> I think it's a useful way to think about thinking. Um, between like small questions and small topics and large ones, like small questions being questions like what year did Charles II die? Or when it comes to cave art, like when was this specific artwork painted? Or what prehistoric animal does that painting look closest to? Like, I think these questions are questions where everybody should try our best. Maybe not everybody, but, you know, it's good to try your best to get one answer to. Figuring, out, figuring it out using, like, reason and evidence and argumentation and all that other lovely stuff. But big questions and big objects of study, questions like how did art arise or what's the purpose of cave art? Like, I think these questions, it's of course fine to try to get one answer. And of course, people who study it their whole lives should definitely try to get to one answer by arguing with other scholars um, or by trying to formulate a single answer themselves, an interpretation that finally cracked the code. But when it comes to regular people like me and probably you, I think it's best to develop a, a multiplicity of lenses of different frameworks and perspectives. Like, like gather different ways of looking at the problem or the object of study. Hmm, maybe it's like this. But there's this other idea that looks at it differently from this angle. Or maybe the reason somehow involves this other aspect here. And eventually you get to a view of the question or the object that has a few different resonating perspectives, as well as an understanding of some of the debates and parameters of the question or object. It's like trying to understand some strange shape in some strange universe where looking doesn't involve just using one's eyes. It's a much more laborious process where just being able to look at the shape from one viewpoint requires a lot of work. So you do the work, a few weeks or a few months of study, and you acquire one viewpoint of this shape. Then you do some more work, another few weeks or a month, 
and you acquire another. Maybe the shape looks completely differently from this other perspective, akin to looking at the front and back of a shape that has a front shaped much differently than its back, like a human being. Or maybe there's a lot of overlap, akin to looking at the same face of the shape from just slightly different angles. But I think once you do enough work to gather a few of these viewpoints, the shape slowly starts to form in your mind in a deep way, not like a holistic way. It's not whole yet, because when you acquire a few radically different ways of looking at something, it really underscores that these are only a few of the possible ways of looking at it. Um, but you do start to see the shape in a deeper way in your mind, because you can apply these different lenses when looking at it. All these different perspectives you've developed kind of resonate together and interrelate. Like, I think more non-experts, like online, people online who love to argue about stuff, <laughs> more, more dilettantes, should adopt this way of approaching large questions and large objects of study for a few reasons, but for one, it's a framing that I think allows for better discussions among people who have developed different viewpoints, different lenses. And cave art, or prehistoric art, is certainly one of those big objects. The question of the motivation of its creators is very much a big question. Just because there are so many specifics and so much data that unless I spend years studying this, I won't have a solid enough grasp of the whole and all of its internal variations and complexities to really compete with others who have spent their lives studying it in like institutions. I won't be able to come up with a single answer to these big questions that's the one that finally cracks the code unless I'm particularly perspicacious. Um, and not that it's necessarily a code to be cracked, of course. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Probably wrong. Um, so anyways, yeah, I like to learn about all these different frameworks and theories as I can, and then use these different lenses to look at cave art through. And I definitely think the Deluso, Guattarian, Ambrosian lens is a pretty cool one. To conclude, I'll read Ambrose's conclusion, and then I'll see you next time. And next episode, we'll, we'll get back to more normal stuff. We'll go through the history of cave art studies in a much more, uh, yeah, much less weird way. Ambrose says, quote, Indeed, Deleuze and Guattari's aesthetics enables us to begin to elaborate upon the insights provided by the prehistorians Anatti and Laure Blanchet, to recognize that what was being ceaselessly explored within prehistoric wall art was the infinite variability and transmutability of the animal, the pure possibilities of all animal life, of animal becomings, of pure animality, the singular abstract animal. What was being attempted was precisely the abstraction and transfiguration of the radically inorganic virtual force imminent to life within a coherent and unified graphic schema Prehistoric peritial art, wall art, simply presents us with one of the very greatest attempts within human art to catch sight of the vitality, energy, and becoming of life itself, rather than a limited concern with the mere representation of actual individuated forms. There is within prehistoric art an attempt to capture the sheer exuberant flow of life, life as an incessant becoming other, life as the vital inorganic force of the cosmos. A path is traced and figured on the cave walls of Lasso and Chauvet between complexity and simplicity, between chaos and order. Upon these surfaces, there is a continual movement 
from the single abstract animal to becoming, becoming bison, becoming horse, becoming lion, becoming mammoth, becoming bear, and becoming human. In conclusion, Deleuze and Guattari's aesthetics allow us to begin to reconceive the prehistoric plane of composition as a zone of radical graphic experimentation where aesthetic possibilities associated with virtual animality, the singular animal, are allowed to manifest. By taking the aesthetic coherence of prehistoric art seriously and attempting to understand the elements that make up the radical graphic continuity found there, that is the ceaseless repetition, folding, dissolving, superimposition, and becoming of animality, Deleuze and Guattari ultimately initiate through this alternative genealogy of art, an entirely new trajectory within Western aesthetics. Il faut qu'il y ait aussi en ligne par vagabond, dans le plaisir, soit dans le changement et passage.